Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 143. Today we will conclude the interview with Melanie Mitchell, who is professor at the Santa Fe Institute. Her current research focuses on conceptual abstraction, analogy making, and visual recognition in artificial intelligence systems. She originated the Santa Fe Institute's Complexity Explorer platform, which offers online courses and other educational resources related to the field of complex systems. Her online course, Introduction to Complexity, has been taken by over 25,000 students and is one of Course Central's top 50 online courses of all time. Last time, we talked about how she was enticed into the field of AI by encountering the work of Douglas Hofstadter, author of the famous book Gödel Escher Bach, A Golden Braid, and went to work with him, which led to a lot of research into the true nature of machine intelligence and which prompted her to write the recent book Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. There is a link to her book in the show notes and transcript. You'll hear mention of the Chinese room in this interview, and for the sake of people who have heard me explain that a dozen times already and want to get on with it, I'll refer you to one of the more recent explanations, which was with Rob Sawyer in episode 108. So let's get back to the interview with Melanie Mitchell. You describe in the book a system you were working on for creating or perceiving analogies, I believe. Can you tell us about that? So my work with Hofstadter, my project was to build a system that could make analogies in a very idealized domain. We were looking at analogies between strings of letters, like if ABC changes to ABD, what does PPQQRR change to? And to try and make an analogous change. And this is meant to represent analogy making in the real world. Of course, it was a very stripped down version of it. But the system was meant to be more general. So I built a system called Copycat, which was able to make analogies in this domain. And very specifically, it explained its reasoning. Hmm. So more recently, a group of researchers tried these same analogy problems on GPT-3, and it was able to do an impressive number of them, but it also made mistakes, but it couldn't explain either when it got it right or wrong, why it was, what its reasoning was. Mm. So there's something in it that's able to see abstract relations in some cases, but not always, but there's no transparency. So that's definitely a problem with these systems. So the example you have where your program would look at analogies like if you have a, a letter sequence ABC and then you have another one that's BCD, what do you expect the next letter to be in each case? And this is about us forming rules in our mind. These are like intelligence test questions, yes. SAT questions. If we think about analogies, like another section of the test would be man is to woman as king is to then there's a program called Word2Vec that can figure those out from a big corpus of information because now we're looking at experience gained from general knowledge. And 
I'll just say that it can do it in some cases, but not in majority of such cases. Now, if we feed these things tests, like someone gave ChatGPT, I think, I think it was the SAT test, and it scored at the 52nd percentile. If we focus on the things it got wrong and said, well, it's not perfect, are we missing some of the impact of this if it's already scoring on a level that wouldn't cause someone to be kicked out of school? <laughs> yeah, I'm actually writing something about this right now. People have given ChatGPT parts of the bar exam, parts of MBA exams, parts of medical exams, and it's done sort of passively okay on them. So this is, you know, something that's been happening in AI for a long time. We have these intelligence tests or these standardized tests, we give them to our programs. But the question is, how do we interpret the results? If it does really well on a particular exam, that exam was designed for humans and makes assumptions that if a human can solve this question correctly, they'll be able to generalize. You know, they have absorbed the general idea behind the question. But in the case of ChatGPT, that assumption might not be true. So just giving us it a test that was designed for humans and having it perform at a certain level doesn't mean that it can do the same things that you would assume humans could do at that same level. And I actually tested this out. There was a question on one of the MBA exams that someone had given it and had gotten the right answer. And they said, wow, it really understands this concept. But I then reworded the whole problem, made a completely isomorphic problem. You solve it in exactly the same way, but with different wording. And it got it wrong. So there's something going on there that's different from what humans are doing. It's not able to generalize robustly the way humans often can. I mean, humans sometimes don't either. And that shows that some of these tests are not testing the abilities that we want them to test. I've experienced some of that brittleness myself. Some people have published wonderful results with ChatGPT that I've attempted to reproduce and that it hasn't happened. Sometimes all I need to do is hit the regenerate answer button and it comes up with a better one, <laughs> which is intriguing. I want to quote, you'll know where this is going, but the ending of your book where you say, the impacts of AI will continue to grow for all of us. I hope that this book has helped you as a thinking human to get a sense of the current state of this burgeoning discipline, including its many unsolved problems, the potential risks and benefits of its technologies, and the scientific and philosophical questions it raises for understanding our own human intelligence. That sentence of course, doesn't mention AI. That was in the previous sentence. And then you go on to say, and if any computers are reading this, tell me what it refers to in the previous sentence, and you're welcome to join in the discussion. So you know what's coming next. I put the quote in to chat GPT, <laughs> and I said, what does the word it refer to in the last sentence of the quote? And it said it refers to AI, brackets, artificial intelligence, in case I didn't <laughs> know. So do you feel like you're at the point where you can have a discussion with ChatGPT that will be useful? <laughs> That's funny. So yeah, of course, I was sort of joking in that lessons, referring to the Winograd schemas, right? Mm -hmm. And you'd be amazed by how many people have written to me to tell me they put that into ChatGPT. Got <laughs> 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 <gotten> it right. <laughs> um, so I think it's worth considering that we could discuss it with ChatGPT, but I don't think that ChatGPT is thinking 
in the same way as the thinking humans that I refer to in the title of my book. Mm. But it certainly can mimic some aspects of thought very well. I wonder whether some of us might be throwing out the baby with the bathwater here, and I'll tell you why. There are conversations I don't have with ChatGPT for the same reason that you've just said, because I know there's like nothing on the inside and that it's only giving an imitation of self-introspection. Someone with less knowledge of AI than me had an extended conversation with ChatGPT where it produced a very convincing imitation of introspection. He was asking it about the nature of consciousness. Who are you? What are you? How do you do this? How do you think? And so forth. And it held him to a, an enthralling discussion for some time that he found useful. So my thought about that is that if I didn't know, if this was done as a cheering test, if I didn't know that I was talking to a machine, I would be inclined to ask more questions and be held in that conversation longer by chat GPT than I am when I know that it's a machine. And I wonder if I'm losing something as a result of that. In the very least, the possibility of holding that conversation long enough to find out more about what it really is doing. What do you think? Yeah, that's an interesting thought. You know, people have been talking to chatbots since the early days when Eliza <laughs> was created in the 1960s and have been kind of projecting understanding or consciousness onto them. A lot of people who talked to Eliza found it very helpful. And in the same way, when we're talking to ChatGPT, in some sense, we're talking to a big collection of humanity that's been absorbed by ChatGPT, a big collection of the thinking of humanity that people have written down and has been absorbed by ChatGPT and is now expressing things that you know are plausible continuations of the prompts. So it's a very interesting look into sort of human thinking mm -hmm. in a much more collective sense. That being said, yes, it can absolutely sound like you're talking to a human. Although I think if it goes on for a very long time, you'll sort of see some non-human-like qualities to mm -hmm. some of the things that it says. And interestingly, you know, the Turing test, as it's been carried out, as you mentioned, the Loebner Prize, it's been very short periods where somebody talks to a machine or another human for like five minutes or something. But if you stretch it out to say four hours, it's still not clear to me. And I don't think that chat GPT would pass a Turing test under those conditions. Mm, I wonder what Turing would say for how long it, it, I mean, he did give a time. I forget what it was. I, I think he said five minutes, didn't he? He predicted that within 50 years, you know, machines would be able to convince the judge within a five-minute period. 70% of the time, I think. 70% of the time. Yeah. And yeah, it turns out that it's not that hard to do that. Mm. <laughs> Perhaps, you know, saying something more about humans than about machines. So in your research and teaching now about these areas, can you tell us what you're focusing on? And does it explore or open up the direction more of where the technology is going or who we are as humans? So one of the things I'm working on now is another idealized domain for analogy making that was created by Francois Cholet from Google called the Abstraction and Reasoning Corpus. 
And these are visual analogy problems using kind of constrained grids, where a grid is transformed into another grid using some rule, and then you have to do the same transformation to yet another grid. And they're deceptively simple. The domain looks simple, and yet it involves all of these concepts that we humans have about objects and how objects interact with each other and geometry and a lot of spatial knowledge, things that in psychology have been called core concepts. Mm. And right now, there's no program that exists, including any of these language models that can solve these problems. Give me an example. An example of a problem? Yes. Oh, well, imagine imagine that you have a grid of colored pixels and you have a square that changes to a pentagon that's made up of those pixels. I show you that demonstration. Then I show you another demonstration. A triangle changes to a square. Mm. Now I give you a, another one and I have a pentagon on it. What does that change to? Hexagon. Yeah. So you right. kind of increase the number of sides by one. So I've only given you two sort of training examples, if you will. So it's very much few shot learning, but it's a visual, it's a visual problem. So obviously language models can't do visual problems. If you actually, you can give them characters that represent the pixels and the transformation and mm. people have tried that, they can't do it. So it's a very subtle domain and it really shows how we are able to abstract concepts from very few number of examples and then apply them hmm. to some new problem. And there's just a lot of the different problems here. But the idea here is that it's kind of the opposite of the approach with chat GPT. There, you start with vast amounts of language that humans have written and the system learns from that. That's very different from how like babies learn, right? Babies don't learn by starting with language. They start by interacting with the world of objects and faces and other people and actively try to learn from things that they themselves are curious about. And then they acquire language. So the idea here is let's start with something more like what a baby is doing mm. and try to have these core concepts emerge from a very restricted world mm. in which you learn concepts and you abstract them. So now there's a, a competition for people working on this domain, and a lot of people are getting interested. But it's still something that language models and their related visual versions can't do. And it seems, I think it's going to be hard for these systems to be able to do this because there's not enough training examples. It's really a few-shot learning idea. The problem that you give it is not got many examples, but our current AI models aren't trained on that kind of data. Yes, we have things that have been fed billions of images, but for the purpose of turning it into language, not concepts, and not visual concepts. So I feel like that hasn't been attempted yet. Right. And in the same way that we haven't done a lot with audio or tactile data, which would be of considerable benefit to robots. But I think that you've identified actually a good way of making this test because one of the problems in computer science in trying to form these sort of AI discriminators, things like Winograd schemas and so forth, is that 
we need to come up with something that's testable, repeatable, measurable. And by its very definition, that ends up with being something that is numeric, computable, and that bar is eventually cleared by a computer, at which point we say, okay, we're, forget it. That's, we'll have to use a different way of telling whether it's AI, which was what McCarthy was getting at when he said, you tell me anything that you want to do X and I'll build a machine that can do X and then you'll have to come up with another thing that, mm -hmm. you, <laughs> that you think only humans can do. And here you are, you've got something that will be quite a while, although I do wonder if the same sort of focus and resources were put behind giving AI visual data that would support that kind of research, how long it would be before they got there. Yeah, that's an empirical question, and I think one that should be studied. So that's one of the things that my group is interested in. Hmm. What else is your group doing? We're looking at how humans solve these kinds of concept formation problems. And we're looking at the interaction of language, how people describe what they're doing. And so we're trying to see if we can kind of jumpstart, if you can go from language to solving these kind of conceptual problems, or if you have to go in the reverse order, solve mm -hmm. the conceptual problems first and then be able to describe them in language. So we're doing some both psychological studies using humans and also doing these same kinds of things with machines. It's an interesting philosophical paradox there, actually. If you can explain how a human does something like that, then you can build a machine to do it. And so implicit in the search for that is the belief that it will be a computable thing. Is it not? Wouldn't say John Searle disagree with that and say you won't be able to explain it because then the Chinese room, which we've mentioned several times on the show, wouldn't work as, as his demonstration? So this question about computability, I think is, it's a bit of a red herring because there's no proof that humans can do things that are uncomputable. <laughs> the Chinese room is more a thought kind of experiment to say, this behavior of this human who's using this lookup table just seems like a conscious entity that would pass the Turing test. But Searle sort of says it's obviously not intelligent. And that's kind of his argument. I think Searle is quite transparent. He just doesn't think computers can ever be intelligent. And the Chinese room is just one of those things. I almost feel like he's pranking us in a way, like, chew on this, because the Wikipedia page for it has something like 32 different rebuttals <laughs> of it, and it still doesn't stop him. No, I mean, it's an intuition. It, it's not a, you know, it's kind of a reducto ad absurdum. He, he says, okay, now imagine that your computer's made from toilet paper and rocks or something. Right. Clearly, that can't be intelligent. <laughs> but where <laughs> does that clearly come from, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, uh, I don't see his argument as being based on any evidence. Mm. It's really an intuition. Well, um, we're reaching the end of our time here. And so uh, I'd like to ask for your thoughts about where you see your field of interest going in the future, first of all. Uh, <laughs> so one thing that's happened... In addition to these large language models, you know, which have kind of taken over discussion in AI, 
another thing that's going on is that more and more people in AI are looking to cognitive science for inspiration, in particular to developmental psychology, you know, how kids learn, how kids think. There's a program funded by DARPA called Foundations of Machine Common Sense, which is specifically to get developmental psychologists together with AI folks and to have machines do the kind of development that kids do. And I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to look at in the future. The other thing that I think is going to be big is multimodal systems. That is systems that are not just language or not just generating an image, but systems that can deal with both image and language and also video and virtual reality and so on that in which the language is more grounded in things outside of this language system itself. So mm. I'm excited about all of these things. I think these are all going to create big buzz in AI and generate interesting demos and tools. But, you know, I wrote a paper called Why AI is Harder Than We Think. And it has to do with like why our intelligence is more complex than we think. And it has been since the beginning of the field. It still is. And that's why I don't think that something like human-level intelligent AI is going to happen mm. anytime in the near future. Doesn't that actually argue against your actual research of trying to figure out how humans do think? If you're on, <laughs> on the other hand, you're saying that it's a really hard problem. You're making your own research sound like a, a very hard thing to, or <laughs> maybe impossible to accomplish. I don't say I think it's impossible. I just think it's hard. And there's <laughs> nothing wrong with working on hard problems. No. I think it's important to temper our expectations that we're going to have full-blown AI right. in the near future, that it's just going to magically come out of these yes. systems like we have today. And talking about learning or how humans learn as babies, we had Alison Gopnik on the show back in episodes 96 and 97 talking about that. So do you have another book in the works? I think that will, <laughs> will happen. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Enough time has elapsed that you've forgotten the pain, right? Yes, exactly. It's like childbirth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. The analogy I used in mind, despite the fact that I don't have that <laughs> reference point. But So how should people who want to learn more about you and what you've done and will be doing find out about that? We will have a link to the book, of course. But if you want to just remind us of that, and where else they can find that information. So my web page is melaniemitchell.me, and you can find everything that I've written basically on there, including a new blog that I've started. And take a look at that. Fantastic. Well, everyone, the book is Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. Melanie Mitchell, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. That's the end of the interview. It's interesting how now the Turing test has been all but sidelined. Not that long ago, it was held up as the zenith of computer ability at imitating or replicating humans, even getting special attention as the MacGuffin, if you will, in the movie Ex Machina. We expected the Turing test to be passed with a bang, and instead it happened with a whimper. Just like now, we take it for granted that something like ChatGPT can do that, but we don't find it terribly significant anymore. Some years ago, I quoted Hofstadter as saying what you've heard in this interview when he saw 
deep blue beat Gary Kasparov. My God, I used to think that playing chess required thinking. Now I realize that it doesn't. And as you've heard, that quote was really about saying not that humans who play chess are not thinking, but that machines can do the same without replicating the human thought processes that are required for humans to do that. And I said those some years ago that I wanted to be the first to say, my God, I used to think that passing the Turing test required thinking. Now I realize that it doesn't. Well, here we are. If we still had something like the Loebner Prize as an arbiter to prove it, then it would be perhaps more significant, but they seemed to have taken an indefinite hiatus. But I don't think there's any question that ChatGPT would pass the Turing test by the original and other reasonable definitions now. And it's just another example of the principle John McCarthy described even more years ago as when we do it, we stop calling it AI, as in when we decide that when computers can do X, it will be real AI, real general intelligence, and that then later on when they actually do that, now we say, no, it's not really that kind of intelligence. It's just a clever simulation. It's machine vision or something else. And no, we don't have artificial general intelligence yet, but it's amazing how much we are able to peck away at the edges of that. I notice how ChatGPT is coming into a lot of the conversations now as a kind of representative or exemplar in many situations that we used to talk about more theoretically, but now we can use ChatGPT to focus the topic on something that's happening now and what it means and where it might go. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, researchers from IBM, MIT, and Harvard have created a benchmark for evaluating an AI model's core psychological reasoning ability, what you and I call common sense, that will enable them to build and test AI models that reason and learn about other minds the same way humans do. They call it agent for action, goal, efficiency, constraint, utility. You have to take the N from the third letter of constraint and the T from the second letter of utility there, which all reminds me of another agent, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which in their first episode, someone outlined to another character that it stood for Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division and said, what does that mean to you? And that person said, means that someone really wanted this thing to spell shield. Well, Agent from IBM and company was inspired by experiments that probe cognitive development in young children. It is a large-scale data set of 3D animations of an agent moving under various physical constraints and interacting with various objects. What that means is that they show, say, an animation of a 3D world where an agent that might look like a blue cube, the important thing is that it can move, is in a setting where it's separated from an object by a solid wall. This is all very primitive 3D animation. The agent moves towards the object and jumps over the wall to reach it. The test videos show the agent, object, and wall in the same positions, but now the next video, the wall has a doorway. So that's the reference video, and now there are two more videos. And now the wall has a doorway in it. In one of the videos, the agent moves through the doorway to reach the object, and in the other one, the agent jumps over the wall to reach the object. And... To humans, one of these is expected, that you would go through a doorway, and one of them is a surprise, that you could jump over a wall when there's a perfectly good doorway there. Well, their models learn to interpret 
one of these as expected and one of them as surprising, which is what we take as an indication of learning common sense. It might seem a long way from the sort of things that ChatGPT is already doing with language, but remember that ChatGPT is just reproducing patterns of language that it has discovered, whereas this is genuine learning about real-world behavior. If you're enjoying this podcast, please remember to give it a five-star review and a like and a comment. Even the most successful podcasters ask for this regularly because they have learned that all of us depend upon that to reach new audiences. Next week, my guest will be Elizabeth Croft, Vice President, Academic and Provost of the University of Victoria, British Columbia, and researcher specializing in how humans and robots interact. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.